This is the Humans of Gaming Podcast, an open and honest conversation about games, life, and belief. Hey gang, this is Humans of Gaming, where we talk to and learn about the humans behind our games that we love. Uh, my name is Chris, and I'm the chief executive nerd for Love Thy Nerd, and co-host of this podcast, the other person uh, that usually is here, Drew, uh, isn't here. He bailed on me, but uh, I've done that to him before, so I forgive him. And um, anyway, I'm joined today by Luke Dickin uh, from Zynga Games and IGDA. What's going on, Luke? Hey, Chris. Good to be here. Yeah, and you are you are currently on a vacation-ish uh, down in San Diego, right? Yeah, emphasis on the ish, unfortunately. Um, yeah. But uh, yeah, trying to get... Get away and uh, get a bit of a break. It turns out uh, San Diego is pretty close to San Francisco, so uh, that's a new thing that I found out this weekend. Yeah, yeah, it's still. I, well, I don't know. I mean, how how would you compare San Diego to San Francisco at this juncture? Better, worse, different? Uh, it's definitely warmer, and what I've experienced of driving here is a lot more kind of laid back and chill. Um, there was like gaps between cars and things, which was uh, new. Yeah, I don't experience that in LA, that's for sure. Yeah, I mean, LA is worse than SF, but like, there just seems to be a lot more space here. That's cool. That's good. That's a that's a good quality for a vacation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, Luke, um, tell us who you are, like what you do, um, industry wise. Um, you know where you work or how people know you. I mean, guess just kind of. Uh, you know, give us the the Luke Dickin elevator pitch. So my background is entirely in artificial intelligence. Um, I I got really interested in AI when I was about fourteen years old. Okay. Um, and and I came to it from games. Um, there was a, a game nobody's ever heard of this game, but it was called Creatures. Uh, and nope, I've never heard of like, it. So that's... this is what I'm saying. <laughs> the, streak, um, the streak remains. So it was basically a Tamagotchi on steroids. Okay. Um, so you've got this side-on view of the world, and you've got these little furry creatures wandering around. Yeah. Uh, and you could kind of play with them and kind of bounce a ball and teach them things and train them. And, and this was like on uh, PC or what? This was PC in like kind of early 90s kind of time. Okay. So we're talking like probably Windows 95, maybe even 3.1. Okay. Um, and um, the cool thing about this game was that the developer had spun out of the University of Cambridge. And it turns out that the all the stuff that was backing this thing for breeding these creatures together and training them and teaching them and kind of, um, you know, there was positive and negative reinforcement. You could punish them uh, and they, they would kind of breed and pass on traits to the offspring. Yeah. It was all legit artificial intelligence stuff uh, that was backing it. Uh, University of Cambridge at the time was like a, a really kind of on the forefront. I was going to say, that sounds that like pretty revolutionary for some early 90s stuff. Well, what's really fascinating about all this stuff is that like a lot of the AI revolution that's happening right now is based on techniques that are 
at least the 90s. Hmm. Um, you know, you, you might hear buzzwords like deep learning kicking around, but deep learning is basically just neural nets. And neural nets have been with us since, I don't know, 70s, 80s, something like that. Um, but, you know, you, you, you see this whole thing as a, as a teenager and you kind of go, oh, my God, this is the coolest thing <laughs> I've ever seen. Sure. Um, and that pretty much set me on my path for, for life, pretty hmm. much. Um, so I went and did uh, an undergrad program at the University of Edinburgh, uh, which was one of the, the pioneering kind of AI institutes in Europe. Um, mm. And it was also conveniently about two hours from where I was living at the mm. time, uh, which was just far enough to kind of have independence, but close enough to go. Do your uh, laundry. And, and run home. Exactly. <laughs> um, <laughs> literally yeah. that. Um so, um, I, I, you know, undergrad turned into a master's because I didn't do super great at the undergrad and decided that um, I probably ought to have a slightly better qualification than kind of, I don't know what the classifications are in the US, but this was kind of like, I graduated with effectively a C oh, okay. uh, from my undergrad. Yeah. Um, and uh, for some reason, they allowed me to take a master's <laughs> program. So I did that yeah. and uh, came out of that okay. And then I, I went uh, to a different university that that nobody has ever heard of, called the University of Strathclyde. Yep, um, you're right; the streak's alive. I, yeah, so you know, coming from overseas, like this is not uncommon. Um, <laughs> so, University of Strathclyde is is kind of a, a it's actually an old university; it, it dates back a few hundred years. Oh. Um, but uh, it's in Glasgow in Scotland, so oh. um, you know, it's it's not one of the big name, kind of well known, and also known as as a city name. So people tend not to kind of uh, have heard of it, but they had uh, a cutting edge research group that I joined um, for my PhD program. And about six months into that program, uh, they uh, said, hey, by the way, we've got this research master's that's a taught program um, and we've got scholarship funding available for that. And we forgot to advertise it. So how about all you new PhD students go and do that for a year? Uh, uh-huh. So so I've ended up with like, more degrees than is really recommended <laughs> uh, all in ai and then the phd that i went back to at the end of this talk program um was specifically ai for games um so kind of drifted through a more kind of theoretical ai to begin with and then drifted back towards the games industry uh as i kind of wrapped up uh, that phd um started getting more heavily engaged with the community uh, this would, would have been just as kind of Twitter was taking off, okay. maybe kind of uh, 2010-ish. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, that's where I got involved in the International Game Developers Association. So I, I know you had uh, Kate Edwards on um, a couple of months ago. Yeah. Uh, so she used to be executive director for the organization. But, what a um, legend, man. That was cool talking to her. She's been around yeah, forever. Absolutely. Um, so... Uh, I won an award from the IGDA mm-hmm. uh, to attend E3. So this is the IGDA scholarships. Uh, so every year, um, a, a group of students are selected who are, are notionally the best and brightest. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they get, um, well, at the time, it was just a conference pass. Now, uh, and I'll skip ahead a little bit, now that we're running the program through the IGDA Foundation, we offer travel money. We we kind of have a, a whole broader kind of suite yeah, of things. Yeah. but um back in those days in 2011 uh it was literally just hey come to <laughs> yeah. la we've got get yourself here we got a pass for you <laughs> uh and and you know to their credit they gave uh, a whole bunch of other opportunities yeah. as well so um, hey passes to e3 yeah, aren't they, cheap so well exactly and then kind of the the extra add-on 
that you get as kind of like um, being introduced to to really kind of core legendary people. Right. Uh, so that kind of started me on this path of engagement with the IGDA because like I came back from Los Angeles kind of um, feeling like I got a life debt to the organization effectively. Mm. Um, so uh, sorry, before we Cam- keep going, I just want to make sure that, uh, tell us what the IGDA is, even, even what the acronym is. I mean, I know, but so for it, our listeners, you know, it's, it's the international game developers association. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, there's kind of two halves to the organization. Uh, and we'll be talking about the, the charitable side of things probably a, a little bit later, but the IGDA itself is like the, the membership association for game developers. Um, so, um, Back in the 90s, there was a, a whole kerfuffle around Mortal Kombat, and there were uh, hearings in the US. Uh, I think there were congressional hearings yeah. or Senate hearings. Or, um, and there were, there were representatives kind of going in and, and representing the companies and talking about the company perspective on stuff. But nobody was really speaking on behalf of the developers. Right. And kind of that's where the, the IGDA started as this kind of um, organization that could be a, a voice for. Um, kind of m- members working within the industry, but not necessarily like the corporate interests of those people. Sure. Um, and today uh, it's, you know, obviously it, it, a big chunk of the industry is in the US, but the IGDA um, kind of aims to be a, a more international inclusive organization. I think there's a, over a hundred chapters now around the world. Oh, wow. um, some of the biggest chapters are in like, Finland and Estonia have great representation. Um, I've not seen membership numbers recently. The last number that I heard was that there's about 10,000 members around the world. Um, so it's a it's an organization that, you know, for better or worse, and uh, I probably have uh, views on this that are not necessarily going to make me super popular, but mm-hmm. unions in the industry are not a thing uh, yet, at least. Yeah. Um, there's a union kicked off in France, I believe, uh, and there's a, uh, the Game Workers Unite group is kind of starting to organize around the world, but nothing's really getting the critical mass that it needs to, to actually kind of go. In the meantime, the IGDA has kind of been, I can't say it's been filling that gap because it, it's not aiming to be a union, sure. um, but in some ways, like it's trying to be that kind of community organization for um at least advocating on behalf of its members and, and also providing kind of professional growth and uh, networking opportunities and, and those kinds of, of things. Um, so I got involved in that in kind of 2011, 2012, ended up running uh, the Scottish chapter of the organization. Concurrent with that, uh, I won the, the award that I mentioned to attend E3. I won it to uh, attend Casual Connect and then GDC. Uh, and then I think partially in an effort to get me to uh, stop winning them. Uh, they said, "Hey, so what if you ran this program?" Yeah. And what um, did you what did so, you have to do to win these awards? Like, it was it? Yeah. What was the criteria for that? So, um, like I said, it's always been a little bit woolly, um, or at least it, it was in those days. We've tightened it up quite a bit in the, in the intervening time. But um, effectively, you've got to be a student in a discipline related to games. Mm-hmm. And we, we take a pretty broad view on what that means. Uh, so we've had political science majors who have an interest in um, using kind of gamification and games techniques as part of their political campaign okay. kind of uh, work. Lawyers, um, audio designers, obviously programmers, game designers, producers, like anybody who is um, 
even tangentially interested in the kind of game making discipline um kind of gets to be eligible there's a, a kind of written essay criteria around like um how are you volunteering in the games industry how are you volunteering outside of the games industry um what are your career aspirations how is going to this event going to kind of uh benefit you and then that gets handed off to a, a judging panel who kind of review um you know we get we, we're now running five uh five programs no four programs um and we get something on the order of uh, five or six hundred applications to to these programs. Wow. Uh, so that, that judging panel is pretty significant at this sure. point. Um, but the idea is that we're kind of finding people who are um, for the scholars program. It, it's kind of uh, anybody who's a student who's gonna who we think is going to go places. And you know, I, obviously, I've been an alumni. Um, people like um, Robin Honecky, who uh, is CEO of Phenomena now. Yeah uh aaron hoffman john who's uh at google uh on the stadia team you know there's a there's a whole bunch of people who've kind of come through this program and then kind of started making their mark on the industry right, yeah. um and the program itself has been running since 2001 um so we've got uh we're headed up to o- over a thousand alumni now across all our programs okay cool. um so i started running the scholars program uh and then um you know, it, it, one thing led to another, and I ended up on to be the, the first person on the board of the IGDA itself uh, from outside of North America. Oh, nice! Um, which felt like a pretty big milestone for the International yeah. Game Developers Association. For sure. Um, and from there, um, I transitioned over and started. Uh, I became chair of the IGDA Foundation. So the foundation is the the charitable aspect of things. Uh, so where the IGDA is kind of focused on uh, membership and kind of uh, advocacy for members, professional development for members, the foundation is more uh, focused on kind of um, betterment of the industry at large and particularly with a focus on diversity and inclusion. Um, and uh, I took that over in 2014, about six months before um I got a, a job offer at Zynga and, and kind of moved across uh, 5,000 miles to live in San Francisco. And, you know, you had your first board member from outside of North America actually move to North America, yeah. which was not, not necessarily the best thing in the world from that lens. Um, you lost your, but, uh, you lost you know, your token foreigner status. Well, exactly. Um, still got the accent, but, yeah. you know, uh, it made scheduling the meetings a little bit easier. Yeah. Um, so kind of the foundation stuff, uh, started, uh, it really was a, a small organization at that time. Um, we've grown by a factor of 500 since then. So it started as something that I could quite easily run in my spare time. Uh, particularly given that I was doing my PhD, I was kind of in the later stages of it. I was beyond done with my research. Like I was, I was just looking for anything that I could do, <laughs> uh, that wasn't focused on, on kind of it turns out that i'm a very uh small uh, short-term crowd uh, short-term project kind of guy oh, yeah um, I so eight years into this phd i was ready to just kill myself right and yeah. um, but uh so I, I was uh i was running a studio and doing uh, ai work for hire on the side i was getting involved with the igda i was doing pretty much anything that i could uh to just avoid doing this um which meant that the foundation got a whole bunch of attention. And then I joined Zynga and suddenly um, didn't have a lot of time because it turns out if you kind of take a real job, that, that eats your time. <laughs> um, it tends to do that. 
so I joined Zynga as a data scientist um, as the foundation was ramping up. We uh, and Zynga, we sorry, to... just for people, Zynga, like you may have heard of this little game called like Farmville, and there's just a plethora. Like Zynga is a big deal uh, in, yeah, in yeah. like online games, mobile games, like all kinds of stuff. Absolutely. So uh, I can give you the quick sales yeah, pitch yeah. on Zynga. Mm-hmm. Um, because I just wrote it for the talk that I'm supposed to give at this conference on Wednesday. Um, So, uh, yeah. um, uh, So, like you say, uh, Farmville is ours, Words with Friends, Zynga Poker. These are kind of the games that brought us to prominence on the Facebook platform. Uh, And we've been around for uh, over 10 years now. Um, But uh, we've made the transition to mobile. I believe over 90% of our revenue now is uh, on the mobile platform. We've acquired some studios, uh, so um, we've picked up a, a studio in Istanbul making Merge Dragons, uh, one in Helsinki making Empires and Puzzles. Um, so we, we've got a, a, over 50 titles in the portfolio now, I believe. Um, the last numbers that I saw, uh, these are, uh, where are we? These will be 2018 numbers. Um, 85 million monthly users and 907 million dollars in revenue uh, for 2018 so um, i don't know the latest like league of legends numbers but i think that's more than that <laughs> or like you got zingo's more than because i think the last league numbers i heard was probably you know 70 million or something like that uh like total total players. yeah total play that's not even like a oh this is how many people monthly um I I wouldn't like to speculate because I wouldn't like to be wrong. Yeah. Um I think I think as a single product league is significantly larger. Um maybe as a portfolio, but like don't forget the Riot's got a single title. All oh, right, sure. Um but I, I would also I would speculate that their revenue numbers are probably pretty significant. Yeah. Uh, particularly when you factor in um you know all the kind of ancillary like league is a cultural phenomenon uh, in a um, in a way that you could maybe argue Words with Friends was, or oh, sure. uh, or maybe Farmville used to be. Um, but like, we, none of our games get kind of a hundred thousand people watching a live stream. Put it out. <laughs> you know, I think though, to Zynga's credit, like it's it's made gamers out of people that maybe didn't think they were gamers. I, well, I, it depends on how you. It depends on whether you're using it's a loaded with a loaded term. I get it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think there's a lot of people who play our games who wouldn't necessarily identify as gamer with a capital G. Um, you know, I, this is a conversation that I have with my mom on a regular basis. <laughs> you know, she she will sit and play uh, some of our match three games like um, uh, Wizard of Oz Magic Match. Uh, so match three is like Candy Crush like mm-hmm. kind of game. She'll sit and play that. She'll sit and play Words with Friends. Uh, she she plays a whole bunch of games. And then she'll say, "Oh well, you know, game games people." And I'm like, so <laughs> "Yeah, what do you think you totally, do every yeah. night?" Um, yeah, so um, so we're in this world now where I've kind of got a split personality: half on the foundation side mm-hmm. and doing kind of um, uh, kind of charitable stuff, and and uh, very heavily focused on uh, diversity and inclusion. And then with the day job, kind of just heads down working on AI things that are not diversity and inclusion mm. uh, and kind of just actually cranking out good work for the company. Um, I think, I mean, do you find, um, you know, speaking of the day job, like I would think it would be really helpful 
in your work with IGDA to like kind of be in the trenches a little bit, like giving you that perspective? And do you find that that's helpful for what you're doing with IGDA? I think I think the answer has to be yes, um, <laughs> partially because like I started running the foundation as like you say as a research student with very minimal industry experience, yeah. and you know now I'm in a position where I'm kind of running a team in a large studio. Um, it, it gives me a lot more perspective on like what the challenges of you know having worked in the in the industry, having kind of um, come through a variety of teams within Zynga and then now leading my own, you know, there are, there are definitely ways that that feeds backwards and forwards. Um, you know, even just understanding large company hiring practices, for example, gives us some insight into, um, ways that we can leverage, uh, process around, yeah. uh, hiring for, for kind of emphasizing diversity and inclusion or even just terminology. You know, I'd never heard terms like headcount or hiring manager, and now they're just part of my lexicon. Right. Yeah. That's cool. So then that's kind of brought us up to current right now. You're doing the Zynga thing and you're um, doing the IGDA stuff. Yeah. So um, the IGDA stuff has turned up to 11. This is kind (laughs) of why I'm working so much on vacation, unfortunately. So we had a a member of staff as our executive director, uh, Jen McLean, who is a career exec uh she's been in the industry for, for many many years uh so she'd been serving as our executive director and unfortunately amazon made her an offer that she couldn't refuse mm-hmm. uh so she she resigned from both Freaking executive amazon. director of the igda it, exactly this is the, <laughs> but uh she sort of um she told me uh, as she as it was kind of coming together she was like so um Amazon's going to make me an offer and like, I'm thinking I have to take it. And I was like, okay, cool. What's the offer? And then I was like, yeah, you should. <laughs> should definitely. So she's now, I mean, just the title alone, she's head of head of worldwide business development for small and medium studios at Amazon game tech. Wow. Um, and that's kind of a role that's like, yeah, okay. I don't, that's a, that's a title that like, if somebody offers you the title, you just go, sure. yeah, okay. Um, so unfortunately, I couldn't have any kind of ill will or animosity to her. Um, uh, you know, she's she's been one of my closest uh, collaborators. One of my, you know, she's a, she's been my partner in crime for the last two years. Uh, so I want all the good things for her. Uh, and unfortunately, that meant she had to step away from the role, and that's meant that I've had to step into the role. Yeah. Um, so on top of a, a fairly demanding day job, uh, kind of picking up twenty high-powered hours of, of kind of season ceo time and trying to fill it in myself uh with i've got maybe five hours a week and i'm trying to do 20 hours of her time <laughs> with that so it's the last month is i'm really developing that thousand yard stare you know yeah so that's you've been in this role for how long then um the the foundation role so i've been chair of the foundation for about five yeah. years uh, i've been acting executive director for about a month oh uh, okay so you're still just dialing in here on this new gig yeah uh yeah it's uh it's a lot um fortunately now that we're past the the big game developers conference which happens in march mm-hmm. that's kind of our a hugely busy period yeah. um so things have gotten a bit quieter uh, and it's really giving me the opportunity to, to take stock and figure out where we're at and how to how to move forwards and we've got a, an excellent board uh who's been very supportive and we're just actively trying to to find a great candidate to take the role on. Right on. Well, uh, I want to turn the corner a little bit because yeah. one of the things we 
would really love to do with our show is kind of dig deeper. And, you know, we don't share a lot, maybe like why we like to do that. Um, but really the, the reason came out of this, I mean, we're, you know, we're nerds and we are gamers and we see this culture and we see the good things in it. We see the bad things in it. And I think some of the bad things, um, are kind of, a I don't want to overstate, but like a dehumanization of the people that make the games we consume at an alarming rate, uh, it kind of creates this sense of entitlement and. Um, just nastiness sometimes. And so we kind of wanted to do this show to like highlight these folks that, you know, work at a giant place like Zynga or, uh, you know, even smaller like indie studios and kind of put a spotlight on and say, hey, like people are people too. Um, and get to hear, you know, where where those motivations come from to make these games and um, and all that kind of stuff. So um, so yeah, I'd love to dig into some of that stuff with you, Luke, and just kind of hear, um, yeah, what makes you tick and what gets you, what gets you excited about AI and, uh, and all that stuff. So I guess to start, like where, where was your Genesis? <laughs> Where'd you grow up? So, um, we hear the accent, so we know it wasn't here. Yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> um, born in England and then raised in Scotland. Okay. Uh, so I moved up when I was about 11, but it's, it's kind of why I I don't have a strong English accent. I don't have a strong Scottish mm-hmm. accent. I've got kind of kind of questionably generic British. Um, and then uh, I moved over here for the Zynga gig. So uh, so 11 to 30 would have been in Scotland. Right, yeah, and yeah. then uh, the last kind of four and a half, five years have been over here. Okay, cool. Um, where in Scotland? So uh, a little town outside of Glasgow. Uh, so kind of Glasgow probably on the fringe of like the Glasgow metro area. So the, the West coast, um, technically in the highlands. Uh, so the, the, the highland demarcation line is like a fault line that runs kind of diagonally up, uh, up Scotland. Oh, okay. Technically I was the other side of it. So yeah. technically I grew up as a Highlander. <laughs> That's not a bad title to have. Ah, it's, it's it brings some certain connotations with it. Like you're going to chop off my head, but you know, I mean like you're probably okay. Cause you're not actually in the room. That's fair. Yep. Uh, so my wife and I, and some friends went to Edinburgh a couple years ago. And I think it's officially my favorite city I've ever been to. Edinburgh's really like being a Glasgow boy. I'm not supposed to say it, but Edinburgh is actually a really nice city. I I spent, uh, sorry, I did my, uh, I I think I said my undergrad and my master's there. So I spent five or six years there and it's a great city. I loved it. And iron brew for life. Yes. (laughs) Yes. The only the only iron brew that I've been able to get over here is in plastic bottle. And yeah. I don't know what happens, but it, yeah. it's not the same. Yeah, we have a little. It was so weird because we have friends in Northern Ireland, um, and they they have iron brew there. That's actually where we first learned about it. So iron brew is this. It's kind of like an orange. If I'm going to explain it to you know my people, the Americans, <laughs> uh, iron brew is like kind of an orange cream soda, but it's so much more. It's a lifestyle. Um, but like violently orange yeah like make like, your pee orange kind of stuff yeah um, it's, it's uh i think neon orange yeah, is probably the totally. best way of describing the color yeah. um but yeah we we learned about it over there and interestingly enough there's this little import store in downtown ventura where i live and i don't know we just happened to be in there one day and saw that they had iron brew but the same thing it's only in bottles it's just not the same yeah it's not. You need the, I don't know, you need the interaction between all the chemicals and the aluminum, I guess. <laughs> yeah, that's probably it. 
So anyway, so growing up, um, Scotland, what was that like? Like what was, what was your upbringing like parents and all that kind of stuff? So, I mean, one of the things that, that I probably ought to call out is that my mom was a coder before, like she was coding on punch cards. She's Uh, so it's in the blood pretty much. My dad was an IT manager. In fact, I think, I think he might've been her manager at one point and I've kind of not asked too many questions about that. (laughs) Um, but, um, yeah, you know, I, I grew up surrounded by computers. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I think I got my first computer as a, as a birthday present when I was five or six years old. Wow. Um, and that was, um, uh, it was, a, well, it started off as a spectrum, a ZX spectrum, um, which I don't think they were as big over here, but it was kind of, um, Commodore and Atari era, but a, a British kind of uh, flavor okay. of that. Um, so it came with a tape drive. It came with a whole bunch of games, but it broke on such a regular uh, <laughs> cadence that, like, I think we we returned three of them, and eventually uh, the store was like, "Hey, do you want something else?" <laughs> um, so I, I swapped it out for an Atari ST in the end. Oh, okay. um, uh, so I was kind of Team Atari rather than Team Commodore. Um, and kind of got my first taste of programming there um, with basic and I was not good at it. Um, I gotta start somewhere. Well, exactly. Uh, And then from there kind of uh, hacked together some really horrible things in basic. And then kind of, I wouldn't say I was a good coder until maybe the third year of university. Okay. Um, Well, I wouldn't say I was a, a mediocre coder until the third year of university. Um, so we started learning Java, which is very different from basic. And I just could not wrap my head around it. And then one day it all just clicked into place. Um, but yeah, so growing up, I mean, one of the things that you have to understand about growing up in Scotland is it's, uh, culturally very different. So like Highland country dancing was a thing that we learned in school, which was weird for me as like a, a guy moving up from kind of, um, Yorkshire, um, to this place where it's like, you wait, you want me to do what? No, um, but country dancing was a thing. Uh, and, and in my area, uh, sailing was the, the kind of big thing. Really? Okay. Um, so the, the kind of little patch of water that this town is on has produced, I think more Olympic level sailors for the British squad than anywhere else. Interesting. Um, and some of those folks who are on the squad right now are actually, people who are I taught sailing to um, when they were little kids. Now, I was teaching them very much like one-on-one. I'm not going to try and take credit for any <laughs> of their kind of they, – they went on to learn from some really good people. Yeah. Um, hey, but you you uh, laid that foundation, so. Sure, let's <laughs> say that. Um, so, I mean, those were kind of the big things. Um, and uh, So a little, I, a little different old, than gaming. Yeah, so um, – you know, every Friday night for me was uh, hanging out with uh, my best friend in particular, but but maybe a few of us. And we would either we went we got to a, a place where we'd got two computers that were uh, networked together, and we would play StarCraft a lot. When we got fed up of that, we would sit down and play like Magic the Gathering. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, we were we were kind of we were kind of the the stereotypical kind of gamer nerd back back in those days. Yeah. Um, and then on a Tuesday evening, I was out yacht racing, which was not that, um, but, uh, yeah, it was, it was 
it was kind of, I can't say strange, but because, you know, it was completely normal for me. But looking back at it, there, there was this kind of split between, you know, uh, classic yacht maintenance and kind of <laughs> right. what what in America, you know, and the, the thing to kind of really call out is that it just wasn't that big a deal. Like, I think in America, there's this, this kind of, um, I won't say stigma, but like sailboats are a rich person's kind of toy. Oh, sure. uh, and that just yeah. wasn't the case mm-hmm. back home. Like the school that I was at had two of these kind of 90 year old wooden racing yachts. Um, but I, I, once I left the high school, I, I bought one myself and it was like 1200 pounds. So what's that? $1,600. Right, yeah. Um, so it, you know, not like dirt cheap, but at the same time, like it's not crazy expensive. Yeah. Um, so it, it really was like just one of the things that you did. And, you know, I, I, culturally, it was equivalent to like just having a weak car, I guess, that you race around the racetrack <laughs> or something. Yeah. Um, so that, that was kind of where my attention was. And then um, we hit uh, senior year of high school and uh, kind of I, I got a, an unconditional acceptance to Edinburgh. So the system works. I, I, I actually have no idea how the system works here. But uh, over there, like you can sort of apply for college in your uh, penultimate year. Mm-hmm. Uh, of high school and then you might get accepted and that might come with like well okay in your final year get these grades and you're in and it might come with like cool you've got enough just come on over when you're ready uh and i got that so my my kind of senior year i did not really do a whole lot um i cruised through a couple of courses and and got very mediocre grades (laughs) uh and Outside of that, I was uh, hanging out playing. We, we'd got an N64 yeah. set up uh, in like the, the senior You sound room. like someone else. Uh, I know. So we were, yeah. Oh, me. yeah? <laughs> oh, well, there you go. Um, so uh, it was all covers GoldenEye oh, yeah. and then out yacht racing and then uh, and then Magic the Gathering in the evenings. Yeah. Um, which, uh, I mean, it was a decent decent way of living for, Not for bad, a bit. How were your, uh, uh, what was your parents' take on, uh, gaming? Like being that they were pretty into like coding and all that stuff. Were they gamers too? Or did they kind of support that for you? Or they were like, no, it's a waste of time. Where'd they land? Uh, they were encouraging, but in moderation, I think. Um, so for, for a long time, you know, the, the computer was in a, a common room in the, in the house and it was screen facing out into the room so that they could at least check up on mm-hmm. what I was up to. Uh, and then kind of later on, I, I got my own machine up in my bedroom, but um, it, it was kind of monitored, I think. Um, and they were, they were broadly pretty uh, engaged with it. I mean, like I say, they, they aren't gamers today. And uh, whenever they come visit me, they, they um, I was going to say they, they sit and watch, me play video games uh, on a regular basis but i guess they don't really have that much of a choice <laughs> given that i'm playing in the living room yeah. of my apartment and they're staying at yeah. my apartment so um but certainly like there was uh th- there wasn't really a lot of pressure mm. i guess uh, there, there was kind of general academic pressure there was a lot of kind of like hey you got 90 percent on this test what happened mm. to the last 10 um but there wasn't like there wasn't a lot of you will do this and you will follow in our footsteps and you know there was just there was no, I, I felt very free to pursue whatever I That's wanted cool. to do. Um, and the sailing thing, like my mom and dad had, had always had uh, like a motorboat. Um, you know, they, they kind of had like a little speedboat since they first started dating, I think. Um, and then they'd gotten on to like more like um, 
you know, larger motorboats that have got a little room for, for sleeping on and stuff. Uh, but they were not into the sailing side of things. And, and when I kind of fell into it, again, they were super encouraging. Uh, so, they, you know, they've always been very supportive, even when they didn't necessarily share it. That's my goal. If and when I'm ever a parent, like, I think that is the, that's the, I don't know, the mark of, of a good parent is like being able to support things that your kids are doing that you yourself could care less about, <laughs> you know, or like that you yourself don't have interest in or that you yourself maybe even like disagree with at some level. But like, if you're still able to support your kid, um, that's, that's a big deal, I think. Yeah. I mean, it certainly, it, it created an environment for me that was, it was nurturing and it allowed me to kind of figure out what I wanted to do. And like, like you're saying, like that's gotta be the ball game at the end of the day. Yeah. Um, what about religion? Like, was that a part of your upbringing at all with your parents? Not really. I mean, uh, I got baptized, um, obviously before I could really remember. And that was um, Catholic. And I think it, that's a great question <laughs> that I probably ought to know the answer Probably. To. If it was like um, infant, then it probably was. Well, I, yeah, I'm, I, certainly my dad grew okay. up Catholic. I think my mom's side of the family might be mm -hmm. Protestant, maybe. Um, uh, but it's, it's never been in. Maybe they just did both just to be thing. safe. <laughs> yeah, I, sprinkle I, a little Catholic water, a little Protestant know. water on you, and your all your bases are covered. Yeah. Um, so the schools that I was at, uh, they were all um, private schools, mm -hmm. um, and they were sort of they they claimed to be non-denominational, mm -hmm. um, but that was in hindsight, I, I sort of didn't have a enough of a frame of reference at the time, but in hindsight, they were categorically christian oh, denomination sure. yeah. um and uh you know the the high school that i was at had a, a chaplain who was the minister for one of the churches mm -hmm. in the town and um you know and, and they were decent about trying to kind of um explain other religions and other cultures in, in kind of the religious studies class that we had to take for a wee while um but um there was definitely a lens being brought to to all of that sure. explanation um go ahead oh so i mean even if i mean it sounds like from what you're saying um that even through school like even maybe just culturally like religion was kind of a part of you know what was happening around you even if it wasn't something coming from your parents is that kind of accurate yeah i mean it, it was it was kind of a, a background radiation i guess to a point where it wasn't even overtly perceived mm. as religion um you know we, you know, school assembly, you would get together once a week or however often, often it was. And, you know, you sang a song and in hindsight, it was a super religious <laughs> yeah. song, but at the time it was just like, okay, well, these are the words. Cool. Let's just sure. get through this. Um, you know, and, and, you know, I've been, as a, as I've kind of grown up and, and matured, I've been all over the spectrum on, on religion as a, as a whole. Um, I think the one thing that I've come to in my kind of approaching middle age is, there are too many smart people and people who I respect who I kind of find out later are overtly religious to be as dismissive as I was maybe mm. in my twenties. Um, you know, I, I'm, I would say that I've kind of, I've definitely gone through my militant atheist yeah. phase. <laughs> sure. Um, we all, and, we all have not, that piss uh, and vinegar stage, whether we're atheists, whether we're yeah. Christians, like whatever we land on, we're all, 
piss and vinegar filled 20 year olds at some point. Yeah. Yeah. I probably ran it for a bit longer than I probably yeah, should have. We all did. Um, but I mean, I, I'm still, um, you know, I, I don't think you can look around at the world we have today and say that organized religion is the greatest idea mm. we've ever had. Um, there's a lot of atrocities and a lot of atrocities historically that have totally. been kind of justified by organized religion. And that's, you know, separating the institution from the right. spirituality, I guess. Um, and, and, you know, I think that's still true today mm-hmm. to an extent. Um, but, you know, I think when you, when you, when it comes down to personal belief, for me, a lot of kind of religious teaching just feels too neat. Too neat. Um, what do you mean? Yeah. Well, so, um, you know, I, I'll use Christianity just because it's my yeah, biggest sure. frame of reference, but you know, um, you know, the, there's at a, at a high level of abstraction, um, you know, you've got, you've got your heaven and hell, you've got your good versus evil. And if you die, you get to go to the nice place and, uh, sky daddy's <laughs> watching over you. Um, it just feels like when, with what we know about physics and with what we know about how the universe works, like that, it just feels like a really trite, easy narrative. And like, of all the possibilities out there, what's the likelihood that it's like, like this, but better, but also like this, but worse if you're a bad person. <laughs> yeah. Um, like it, it just, like I say, neat, too neat is kind of the only way I yeah. can describe it. Like the real world, the, the, the real world that we interact with is so much more um, nuanced and varied and, and such a more interesting mm-hmm. texture that, you know, if you squint at a lot of kind of organized religious kind of institutionalized religion teachings, you you come away with like a caricature of the of the world. Yeah. Um, that, like, and, 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 you know, I could be dead wrong. And, and some of it is kind of like... Um, so the, the physicist, uh, Richard Feynman has a, uh, or had, I guess, um, uh, this, uh, interesting quote that like, um, in the context of, of human kind of, uh, evolution, um, you know, religion kind of positions humanity as the pinnacle of evolution and kind of like made in God's image. Um, and, and his point, uh, the way that he framed it was that, you know, if he goes out on the street and comes back in and goes, Oh, I just. I just went out on the street and I saw a red car with the license plate 96754. Um, what are the odds that I would find that license plate on that red car? Um, and like a lot of it is about kind of the, the, the point is about the determinism, mm. right? Um, you know, if, if you say that where we are today is the only outcome that's acceptable, then like the odds are so astronomical that you kind of have to believe in some sort of like, structure that has guided the process to this point um but at the same time like if you wind the tape back and play it play it again is this the only you know is humanity the way the only way that the tape plays out or you know is there a world where you know things go slightly differently and the whales (laughs) run the planet yeah um and i think it I, i think my view is that it's very easy to kind of back into a supreme being that is that we are made in the likeness of when there isn't a supreme being to kind of go, look, we are the likeness. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's very kind of um, kind of narcissistic at the species level, I guess. Um, I don't know. I, I feel like I'm just on a, on a bit of a, a rant right now. I mean, I think like, you're onto something like it. It's resonating with me. 
I think, you know, I've, I've been a Christian, like, I don't know, 20, 20 years or so when I was like 15. Um, and just in the last few years, like I've, I've certainly been on this journey of like, cause I think what you were initially saying was this kind of like this neat idea, or I almost kind of interpret it like it's just very black and white and honestly kind of boring <laughs> to me. Um, because I think you're right in that it leaves out so much of the nuance and beauty and messiness of what we really experience life to be. And I've kind of been on this journey the last few years of really digging into my own faith and belief and um, and really learning like historically that I think in a lot of ways, unfortunately, like Christianity's kind of been poorly really poorly represented um, because it didn't start out that way. I don't think Uh, it started out kind of more. What we're talking is like this. We're just trying to figure this out. You know, we're trying to make sense of this. And uh, so, yeah, I think, I think you're really onto something and it's hard to put this stuff into words, man. Like (laughs) it really is uh, hard to put some of these higher thoughts into words. Exactly. And I think that that is why, you know, it being hard to put things into words 2,000 years ago is how you end up with a, a an abstraction getting handed down, sure. handed down, handed yeah. down, and kind of, you know, the the nuance gets knocked off mm. over the years maybe. Um, but I don't know, like, at the end of the day, for me, the spirituality that I've kind of come to is, like, either there is no higher purpose, in which case all right, cool. Well, then I guess we're just doing the best we can and let's make the best go. And then exactly. Or there is in which case, like, well, let, well, let's try and make the best of it. Um, and I, I've kind of, I, I, I don't know really what the, whether there's a, a term for where I've ended up, but uh, kind of um, disengaged apathy is sort <laughs> of uh, maybe, maybe like the, you know, at the end of the day, I, I think that, you know, there's a, there's been a meme flying about about ants. I don't know if you've mm. seen this one, uh, but kind of um, ants create a. It, it, there's a, a bunch of ants in your in your kitchen, and they create a circle and spell out your name, and that's going to get your attention. I'd say. Yeah. Um, so you sort of go, "Hey, ants, well, what do you, what, <laughs> what, what's going on? What do you want?" Uh, and they say, uh, "You know, oh well, we're just we're just trying to you know worship our higher power." And you go, "Oh, cool, 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 cool." <laughs> um, and then one of them's like. Well, I want this ant to love me, and he, he doesn't love me, and I, I want to marry him. And and you go, okay, well, uh, okay, let me just squish everybody else, and now it's <laughs> you and him. Good. Um, and you know, it, it's kind of a, a way of kind of reflecting the the disconnect between yeah. higher powers and and kind of the the perception at the at the lower level. It's um, you know, the the idea to me that a higher power exists is. Um, you sort of have to say, well, maybe there is something else and there's no way that I can yeah. prove it one way or another. But that higher power caring about me feels off because like, I don't care about a specific ant. Um, I don't know. That, that is maybe just a bleak worldview. Um, but I don't want, you know, I, it's not that I would deny that there is anything, but I don't know. It just feels like not necessarily something that I want to get sure. too hung up on. Um, because like at the end of the day, we're all out here trying to do our best and like, maybe there's a reason, maybe there isn't, but you know, the folks who, um, kind of 
use their faith as the source of their morality, they scare the <laughs> shit out of me. How so? Um, well, you know, basically you're saying the only the only reason that I'm prepared to do something nice for anybody is that somebody might be watching over my shoulder uh, and punish me later. Um, and, like, that is some serial killer yeah. stuff right there. Um, it's that kind of know, fear-based, be nice fear-based love, <laughs> which seems counterintuitive. Yeah, exactly. Um, but, like, you know, I would gladly kill you, but I might get punished for it, so I'm not going to. And that's morality. And I'm like, wow, that's a <laughs> statement about who you are as a person. Yeah, such restraint. Thank you very much. There was this um, interesting, yeah. uh, I heard about um, this. I didn't actually look. I just, I heard it on a podcast from a, this dude I've listened to. Uh, there was this study done, a uh, brain study, and they studied people that pray. And, um, you know, w- one of the groups they studied were people that pray, but people that prayed kind of out of this, um, this sort of fear-based thing, like, you know, God, I'm sorry, don't smite me, um, you know, I repent, and all this kind of sort of fear-based language. And then the other group was people that prayed out of more of kind of a loving, appreciative, gratefulness um, sort of focus. And the study came back, and they actually noticed um, – like growth because they did this over a number i don't know how long the study was conducted but they noticed actual like growth in the brain um from the group that was more out of like the love kind of you know not the fear-based stuff but like the more you know gratitude and and that kind of stuff um and i don't know it's just really fascinating to me that because i think you're right and so many people approach Really, any faith. I don't think it, this is even just exclusive to Christianity. I mean, I think that's one of our biggest examples. Um, but uh, I mean, we see that in humans, even just in politics or any other kind of leadership scenarios uh, that we we just respond to fear, you know, for better or for worse. Yeah, yeah. I, and I mean, one of the things that I'm trying to get better about is. Um, you know, there's there's kind of a movement in the uh, like startup ish, startup and entrepreneur adjacent kind of uh, spirituality, meditative kind of space uh, around like morning mm. gratitude and, mm-hmm. and things like that, which is kind of disconnected from directly from spirituality. But you know, I do feel better when I sit down and I fill in my journal and I you know, write down the three things that, you know, I actually want to focus on being grateful for this morning. Um, And even just to a point of like reminding yourself that there are good things in the world. Go figure. Um, And (laughs) yeah, well, exactly. And I mean, it's easy to turn on the Mm -hmm. TV and forget that. Um, But, you know, it's, uh, I think whether you need, whether you want to anchor that to a higher power or not, um, you know, what you're saying and and that study really sounds like it, it, it's onto something, you know, coming from a negative space leads mm. to negativity and coming from a positive space leads to positivity. It um, sounds so simple when you put it like that. <laughs> Why am I not doing it more? I mean, well, I mean, this is honestly, when I started out with this journaling thing, uh, it really was like, a, well, people are doing it. Mm-hmm. I guess I ought to give it a go. And, and you know, I was, um, I was feeling if I say lost it, it's probably a little bit melodramatic, but you know, I was, I was in over my head on a few things. My, my head was Mm -hmm. not in a good space. Um, and just having 
having that kind of clarity of thought to order order what's going on, structure structure my thoughts, structure my day, and actually kind of um, find peace, I guess, was really beneficial. Now, you know, I, I did that without the framing of mm-hmm. the higher power, but I can see how it would be easy to kind of make the leap and kind of sort of uh, want to anchor it around that. And, you know, I don't think that is necessarily a bad thing in the way that like, you know, 10 years ago, I might have been, whoa, spirituality, <laughs> religion, mode. Yeah. Wow, that's cool. So just as we wrap up, I have kind of a, I mean, this is probably a big question, but um, one we like to ask is what, like, what drives you to, to make games or to be involved in this industry? Like, what's the thing we've talked about a lot of stuff between religion and, you know, your parents and upbringing, all those kinds of things, but what, uh, yeah, I guess just what drives you to make games? What do you hope people get out of that experience that you're involved in? Wow. Uh, that feels like a question that I'll need to sit and ponder for a while, or maybe, yeah. a, maybe a question that I ought to have a, a answer well, of any for, of the things but, we've talked um, about too. I mean, think, yeah. At the end of the day, like for me, I, I think there is a connection between, uh, and I'm only just starting to understand this, but the way that I think about like spirituality and higher powers and everything else, I mean, there is a way you can squint at the work that I do with the, the AI stuff and say like, I'm almost trying to understand that through creating mm. something, which is a grandiose way of framing my no, work. It's, it's actually really interesting um, to say that because I, I was, as you were talking about, you know, how you relate to higher power, how you think about that stuff. I was thinking about your work in AI. I was even going to kind of ask, like, do you see those two things linked or how does that really, like when you were talking about the ant, that ant kind of uh, thing, it, it made me think about AI stuff. But anyway, go on, say more. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I I crack wise about it and kind of like, you know, um, the AI revolution is coming <laughs> and it's going to automate everybody yeah. out of a job, but it's okay because I'm going to be the AI right, messiah. Yeah. So I'm You're good. just going to be um, on the right side of history. Well, exactly. Um, which I mean is is it's easy to crack jokes about, but there is like a nugget of maybe something there. But also, we're so far away from that right now that it's not a mm. realistic concern. Um, honestly, the the thing that I'm working towards is I I think that we can have there is a game that I want to play, and I don't think people can make it. Um, I think that the the game I want to play is so sprawling and and so large that it's infeasible for humans to actually mm. create that world um you know imagine a world of warcraft where um you know the you don't the the world is so big and there is so much happening in it and there is so much varied content that it's not run over here and sit and wait for the boss to respawn but everybody is having their own experience and everybody is having like a a different kind of um their own journey you know one of the one of the things with a lot of games right now is that everybody flows Mm. through the same journey um and in some ways that's you know that parallels kind of books fiction movies in that there is a single journey and a single authorial intent and we're trying to communicate a single story for me you know i I played eve online for five years god bless you um (laughs) i know right it was I hated that game for oh, three funny. of those five years, um, but the social constructs around oh, man, it kept me playing. Yeah. And the, the the you know, Eve is a fascinating game in a lot of ways because it is 
more of a, a framework and a sandbox universe than the most any online game yeah. right now. Um, but but one of the core experiences for me, um, you know, or, or core reference points is Dungeons and Dragons. Um, you know, tabletop RPGs are probably to this day some of the pinnacles of game playing experiences, and it, you can see that in the way that those mm -hmm. games have persisted. Um, but what drives those games to be as good as they are? My my thesis is that it's the human intellect, the the dungeon master driving that game and tailoring it and tweaking it and making adapting it to the people um, and kind of allowing them to explore their own stories within the framework of the universe that's been created. And video games don't mm. do that. And we are not going to be able to do that soon. Um, but if there's one thing that I want to be able to kind of, at the end of the day, say that I did with my career, it's moving the needle towards that and empowering players to do things that are, you know, my D&D &D group are all heavily lateral thinkers. We will always kind of do an encounter upside down, <laughs> kill the boss, and then figure yeah. out how to deal with all the minions. Um, and you're just and, scratching his head. Yeah. Well, so, you know, we, but, but video games yeah. don't allow for that. They don't allow you to kind of, um, you know, if you think about Skyrim, Skyrim allows you to um, collect brooms. You can collect all the brooms in the world. But if I had a whole backpack full of brooms, I could make a ladder and climb mm. over this tall wall. And that mechanic doesn't right. exist in the game. But what if it could? Um, you know, a great example of that, you know, one step towards that is a game like Scribblenauts. Um, so uh, Scribblenauts uh, is a series of games that um, you... The, the the concept is that the character has like a magic journal or something and anything you write down mm -hmm. appears in the world. Um, and that means that on the back end, they've got a massive library of assets and anything that the player types in theoretically can be spawned into the world. So you can, um, you can create a ladder, you can create a wall, you can, um, you know, if you've got to fly from one end to the, or if you've got to get from one end of the map to the other end of the map, you can do that in so many different and diverse ways. You can, uh, get a rocket pack or a, build yourself a plane or, you know, any way that you want to approach that problem you can do, um, which is a really interesting step towards this kind of idea of allowing players to explore spaces and do what they want. Man, yeah. You know, and, and that, that empowerment is kind of what what I want as a player and what I think we can ultimately deliver through yeah. AI. You made me think of um, when I first, my first kind of memorable experience with Breath of the Wild, you know, the recent Zelda game. And I, you know, at the very beginning of the game, you just kind of wake up in this temple. You don't really know what's going on. You don't have anything. You just like have some clothes. And I walked out of this temple and there's this axe like laying there. And I'm like, oh, cool, an axe. Like, I'm going to pick that up, obviously. So I pick it up and I equip it. And I see this tree and I'm like, well, obviously I need to hit something with this ax. So I hit the tree and it falls down and I'm like, oh, I wonder if I could like get some firewood from that or something. So I hit the tree again. It turns into a little bundle of firewood. Like, I wonder if I can like start a fire with this thing. And so I find a rock or I forget what it is in the actual game, but, um, and I set it next to the thing and then I hit it with the ax and it turns into a fire. And that to me was like, it seems stupid even just saying it, but it was like so revolutionary that you could follow this process of like logic and it worked. 
Um, and I think that, I mean, that is barely scratching the surface of what you're talking about, but it's a step in that direction, you know, like if you can think it, absolutely, you should be able to do it in the game, you know? So yep. that's, yeah. Yeah. That's cool. Well, hey, man, we're we're out of time, um, but I did want you to share any ways for people to follow you, follow the work that you do, either, you know, Zynga stuff, IGDA stuff, you personally, like how can people find you? So best place is probably on Twitter. Uh, I'm at uh, Luke D, L-U-K-E-D. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, you will get a bit of R-rated content there when I go off on a rant about something. Uh, but uh yeah, there's usually um, there's usually just me screaming <laughs> into the void. Uh, but uh, yeah, that, that's kind of the the core place to to keep tabs on me and and what I'm doing both on the IGDA side uh, and on the Zynga side. But uh, I would encourage everybody to to kind of check out the IGDA Foundation. Uh, you can find us on Twitter at uh, at IGDA Foundation um, and uh, IGDAFoundation.org. Um, we're going to be doing some really cool stuff there. And if you're interested in kind of games, you know, the, I, I should state the mission of the IGDA foundation yeah, sure. at least once in this hour. Um, Cause I think it actually, it actually ties in and it, it really does um, uh, kind of uh, neatly encapsulate it. It, it. The, the way that we think about things on the foundation side is that um, we want the games to be reflective mm. of the stories of everyone. Um, and we believe that the best way for games to be, you know, reflecting those stories and uh, welcoming to everybody is for everybody to be able to make games. And that's why we have this big focus on diversity and inclusion. Um, you know, I'm not able to tell kind of African stories, Africa, mythology of Africa, um, but I'm pretty sure there's some really cool, interesting yeah. stories and games that would come out of people being empowered to to kind of did make those games um we've seen that with um uh i think it was called uh, never alone oh, yeah. maybe uh, and it was a game mm-hmm. made by an inuit team uh and the fact that, that they were able to tell their culture's stories in right. a game environment was yeah. so amazing um but the more that we can kind of make you know make games that are reflective of everyone but also like bring different lenses and different backgrounds and different perspectives to to game development the more that we can make really cool things you know if three people have the same exact kind of lived experience then you get one kind of set of perspectives on how the game should be made um so for me obviously i'm coming at, at everything with the ai lens but also like this kind of uh scottish ai um tech (laughs) <laughs> tech in the blood kind saline of extraordinary you forgot that um, exactly <laughs> yeah now there's a game that hasn't been made in a while well we'll leave it we we'll leave it um, in your capable hands but yeah so so exactly thank you very much for for giving me the opportunity yeah to chat for about sure stuff, Chris. uh you can find me i am on twitter i haven't used it since 2014 but you can find me on there cl gwaltney uh but better than that you could probably find me on facebook also cl gwaltney uh, Drew, who's not here, you can find him on Twitter. He's super active. Uh, Drew Dixon 82 and uh, find love thy nerd everywhere. Uh, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Um, you can like us on Facebook. You can also join our Facebook group, love thy nerd community, where it's just a bunch of nerds talking about nerdy stuff 
which is always a good time in my opinion. Um, we've also got a podcast network. So we have two other podcasts, uh, the free play podcast, which they're just way funnier than me. Uh, Andrew, for that matter, Luke, I just met you, so I don't know if they're funnier than you yet, but that remains to be seen. Um, there's also the poll list podcast, uh, which is all comic book stuff. So if you're into comics, even if you're not into comics, uh, they will get you into comics. So check those out. And, um, yeah, I think that's pretty much it. Appreciate you guys listening, and thanks again, Luke. This is uh, it for Humans of Gaming.